Hello and welcome to another episode of No Holds Barred. Today I'm joined on the line by Mustafa. How you doing, mate? Not too bad, how you doing? Very well. We're talking about something very specific and unique today. Uh, we're talking about the terrorist attacks that happened on the 7th of July 2005. Uh, Mustafa was... Um, he was on one of the tube trains that exploded or, or, or a bomb was de- detonated uh, on a tube train. One of three. Uh, there were four bombs on that day. Um, one in Tavistock Square on the t- on top of a double-decker bus and the other three were on the uh, the tubes. There was a total of 52 people died, 700 injured. Uh, and Mustafa was one of the survivors. Uh, Mus, can you explain first the day like from 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 the start as best you can because it was a long time ago but i'm sure you've had this run over your head so many times or run through your head yeah sure um so i was living in hackney at the time um like that's where i was born and raised and i was on my way to a home office event like i don't know if you remember back then um like a whole bunch of us would be involved in sort of government initiatives charity stuff um there was a government program called the russell uh, commission which was commissioned by the then Chancellor Gordon Brown to like encourage young people into volunteering. And I was just one of the young people who was involved in helping set that up. Um, so I was going down to a conference to give a talk about like the work we'd been doing with government. Uh, and so like get on overground train, going to Liverpool street. Um, it was kind of, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of weird freaky, you know, like, you know, it's like weird, um, you know, uh, sort of black mirror, I suppose, to be the the reference now. So like, I get to the uh, the Clapton station, and the train's leaving the platform, and it's late. I was like, "Oh man, I'm going to be late for the train." And then five minutes later, another train comes, and that has never happened before in my life, and has never happened since. <laughs> so then I get to Liverpool Street like really quickly, uh, jump on um, Circle Line, and in between Liverpool Street and Allgate, like a bomb goes off. Uh, we didn't know what it was at the time. Um, the way I've described it in the past and the way I remember it, it's like if you get like a ripe bean a carton and blow it up and then you stamp on it, like that was like the, the loudness of the pop. Because um, you, you, you'd expect it to be uh, like massively loud, like deafening. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's like of all the train bombings, the one that was really bad was King's Cross and that was because it was in, the, the when the bombing happened, it was in one tunnel. The other two, they were like... Uh, there was two tunnels like uh, in parallel next to each other. So when uh, CID came around to like interview me about it, they reckon that it's because of the the openness of the space meant that the blast radius wasn't as bad, where King's Cross was much more packed. Mm. Um, but yeah, so then when I asked the police at the time, like, do you know roughly where it was? Because every carriage on the train I won, like, was on a different thing happened. So like, I won, the lights cut out, the one in front of us, it was like um, smoke and stuff. So they approximated i was maybe a carriage away from the bomb um so but at the time we didn't know what it was like we were on underground for about 45 minutes from what i can remember uh i remember like you on on overground trains or like normal uh, national rail you can actually open the train door on the underground you can't that's the thing you you don't realize it on the underground so you're trying to pry the doors open it's just shut um solid I remember looking out the window and seeing people walking around on the track. And because we didn't realize it was a bomb, I was freaking out thinking, oh, my God, someone's going to get hit by an oncoming train. Um, can I, can I, then, can I uh, just because just obviously this is something that you've, you've played over so many times. Yeah. And as you're talking, I've got so many questions. So if you don't yeah. mind, if, if I could stop you to ask you questions as you go through it. Yeah, sure. So when, when, when the pop happened, the bomb exploded, that they estimated that it was the carriage just in front of you. 
Oh no, there was a, not the carriage in front, but the carriage in front of that. So it was like a carriage away from where I was at. Understood. Right, and um, the train wasn't moving. Uh, so the train was going, and then suddenly, just like the pop happened. Yeah. Like like a click, and then the train lifted off the track and wow. slammed down. So it felt like like the, the the sensation was like, oh my god, we've gone over a slab of concrete, or the the, the train lines being broken. Yeah. Um, and did, it did felt you... like. Sorry, yeah. go on, sorry, sorry. Go, go ahead. It, it literally felt like we'd gone over something. Yeah. Um, and... Did, did did and did people fall over? Was it a jolt? Did, or and what was the immediate reaction? What how, so the carriage out was like there was. <laughs> so like, here's here's another thing. It's like I had headphones on because I was listening like to Eminem, <laughs> like uh-huh. random things you remember. And like so, my hearing was a bit muffled anyway. So the pop, but even then, like you imagine an explosion. Like, I suppose maybe that's we're conditioned to think explosions because of Hollywood, like these massive things. Yeah. Maybe it's, it, the the sounds are not like you know. Um, but yes, I mean, I took my headphones out. Suddenly the train just jolts forward. Everyone kind of just uh, in the carriage I was in. And then I just took my head. Is everyone OK? And everyone's kind of like, what's going on? What was that? That's weird. Um, I remember a woman going, oh, it's probably a terrorist attack. And everyone kind of scorning and going, oh, come on. Not in London. Really? You know, like, someone did, someone mentioned that? that... Yes, yeah, so on the train. Yeah, I remember like, it's like a lady like, um, and other people like, oh, come on. Like, it was like kind of like you're having a laugh, you know. So like if you're in a pub and people, someone says something, your your mate Dave says something, everyone's like, ah, sharp. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's yeah. kind of that kind of feeling of like you know what you're talking about, which is obviously very you know weird in in hindsight. And then so, but you could hear people screaming and shouting from distance, going, oh, uh, you could actually hear it. Uh, but were um, these what people in pain? Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's like people in the because. Because no one could see what was going on for the rest of the train. People were just hypothesizing. Like, uh, there's like, oh, they must be claustrophobic. Oh, they must be afraid of the dark. Oh, they must be, you know. Like, no one, because in our carriage, we couldn't see what was going on. But it was um, dark and, in there. Yeah, no, it was pitch black. Wow. Uh, I mean, you could see some lights from, because you could just about see the light from Allgate. I mean, it was a bit of a way, but you could just about, because we were just coming into Allgate Station. Yeah. Uh, and then someone opened the, the carriage the door carriage from the one in front of us and said could you please move down it's getting really smoky in our carriage we have to move in and people were like i'll go okay and so then we all started packing themselves into our carriage because like something's there must be a fire or something's gone off like you know um well, was and this, then, was the, the train this is rush hour london yeah this so is like the train is busy already isn't it yeah oh yeah this is like people gone and also it's like people going to the sea in it like this all gates going to like the financial part like um because it's the line that goes straight towards westminster uh and so people packed in then then after about 45 minutes you start seeing rescue workers like people trying and they start signaling everyone to move to the back of the train because that's the only way out and it's like okay you don't really think about it but in hindsight it's like yeah they're not going to make us go forward because that's where the blast has happened they're saying go back right so like, everyone's walking slowly back to the train and then every now and again people are like please move out of the way move out of the way someone's like covered in blood or they, they've covered like they're trying to stop so like, oh my god this is actually a lot worse than what it is so, you, oh. you, so everyone's jumping on the seats as other people are like rushed to so the back. so people are injured they're rushing them back through the train yeah and uh, people are injured. jumping on the seats to get to get them out, out. of the way yeah like because like you see someone in bleed like oh my god like let them go quickly maybe like something's happened how did so, you but, feel so, how did you feel i don't know it's just point? confusing man like it was just so confusing like it's like what's happened it's that you, just you know, know. yeah no exactly it's complete ignorance right and so i get <laughs> i get to the end of the train and the thing is you don't realize at how high up those trains are so like you have this, these um rescuers like calling me down to jump off the train at the end and i'm like 
oh my god that's really high and i'm quite sure anyway <laughs> so i jump off and i like land in the tunnel like rolling around next to the track like covered in soot and it's like oh my god that's really high um how high so walk- what, is it five feet six feet yeah, probably. And also, obviously, when you add your height, that's the thing I did used to do rock climbing as well. When you add your height to it, yeah. it, it feels higher perceptively because your head plus your height plus the, the jump. Absolutely. Um, so, but anyway, I got down and the guy's like, oh, you're right, mate. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just covered in soot. And all right, okay. And then now we're walking back around the rest of the train because it's like we've come towards the end of the train, jumping out. Now you have to walk back to the station. It all gets the closest one. So everyone's weirdly walking towards Allgate Station. Uh, kind of like a zombie-esque and so like we're getting and i'm I, and this was like um camera phones were still relatively new back in 2005 um and i was always obsessed about taking pictures this is before it became mainstream yeah yeah <laughs> uh, and everyone's instagramming everything and i just started taking pictures i don't know why to this day i don't I have no idea why you would do that it's kind of weird people say that they now like you, you take pictures in horrific moments to um desensitize or like remove yourself from the situation but that just sounds weird i mean i was just oh my god that's weird let me take a picture and but i always did that like when i was 19 i survived like an earthquake in turkey and my instinct reaction was to take photographs i don't know why it's a very weird thing i don't, um, I, I don't know if if it is a weird thing mate I, I think you're you're going through something so confusing your brain isn't functioning in a typical way and bearing in mind like full disclosure me and must have known each other for many many years and uh, we haven't spoken in a long while. This is the first time, actually. But um, but we come from a media background where we were taught to document. We were taught to 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 create. And I, I think it's from a journalistic perspective exactly the the right thing to do, as long as you've been respective of what you're respectful rather of what you're taking. And and there is that element of disassociating yourself from the reality by looking through a lens. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. One of my friends accused me later on. He goes, oh, you just took pictures so you could sell them to the newspapers. I'm like, you don't really think that detailed in a situation like that. You're not thinking, oh, yeah, something bad's happened. How can I make money from this? Like rubbing your hands with glee. It's like, oh, my God, what's happened? And also, um, if you remember back then, like uh, 9-11 was still quite fresh. I mean, it's only a few. It's like, you know, five years or so. Uh, But it's still quite fresh in everyone's mind. It was high of the war in Iraq. There was a lot of conspiracy theories about what happened. Part of me was always like I was on, always on the side of the cons- at back then of the conspiracy theorists because it was just just distrust of like the state or whatever. So I was naturally taking pictures, thinking I'll have evidence, right? This is proof. I'm seeing it for myself. Just take pictures, take pictures. Um, and then so slowly we're walking towards where the carriage, where the blast has actually happened. Of this point, we still don't know what's actually happened. It's not clear that it's you know. Like hindsight, when I look at the pictures, which I still have. You can tell that, yeah, <laughs> this isn't like a normal fire. Um, and then to this day, I'm pretty certain there was a dead body on the track. I'm pretty certain. The thing is, the people's minds and memories play with them. And then like sometimes they superimpose. I'm pretty sure there was someone on the track. Like, and like, just so we get, get an idea. So you're walking back through the tunnel and walking yeah. towards the the explosion. Yeah. Well, so, if you imagine, explosion so, so it's like imagine the bomb goes off in the middle of the train. I'm behind the bomb. I can't get out, so we're asked to walk back towards the back of the train. Now we're looping back to go towards the front of the train because that's where the um, entrance of Allgate Station is. And did you walk past the the the, the carriage that had been? Yeah, blown yeah, up? yeah, yeah. Because that's in the middle, right? So, um, and I've taken pic- I've got pictures of like the the front of the carriage, um, and I'm just a snapping, snapping, snapping. And so we're walking like zombies. Still, it's not clicked. 
Um, so then we walk out to all gate, and I'm taking pictures, like, and it's weird, like, when you look at them, a lot of them are so um, uh, atmospheric photographs, if you see people, like, obviously injured, confused, whatever, because you're not thinking, you just take, like, the thing is, when I was taking photos, I'm taking photos of the station or general crowds, but obviously people are focused in on, like, you know. Um, and there was one weird incident where I was taking pictures as once I got outside of the station mm. of this girl. I mean, I mean, we'll allude to her again and because um, her family members were looking for her and she went to the hospital. Like this is after my parents actually found her in hospital and um, she was trying to get in touch with her family, couldn't. Uh, and so like when I went on TV, I showed this photograph, say, look, this person, they're fine. They're looking for their family. They can't, you know, this one. But we'll get back to that in a second. Okay. So uh, I get out of the station um, and the police are just taking everyone's names down. I mean, the police were as confused as we were. Like, no one knew what was going on. Maybe they may have been alluded that what had happened at that point. But, like, the police would ask me my name. I said, Mustafa. They start searching my bags. I didn't really care at that point. It's just like, do you know what? Everyone's going through shock. Like, it, for me, it's like people react in different ways. Right. So, you're, you're, sorry, just slow that down a second. So, you're, you, you're being interviewed by the police. They ask your yeah. name, Mustafa. So, they assume probably right Something. that you're a Muslim. <laughs> But, yeah, but, but, well, I mean, but, but then that connection is that, that oh, we need to check his bags. And I, yeah. I, I guess a directive would have been, you have to check it. This is an Islamic thing. Well, you'd think that, but then, like, everyone else walking past with their um, laptop bags, and I'm the one who's being frisked. And they said, but the thing is, it was always respectful, right? And the cops goes, I have to check. Go ahead, mate. I understand. Like, I know the drill, right? You know, yeah. um, I fit a profile, whatever. Because the thing is, although I think it's bad, it's like from their perspective, if they weren't to search and something was to happen, they would get blamed for it. Yeah. And I know it's, it's kind of like a messed up thing, but it's like, look, just check, know that I'm not a bad guy and we just move on. Right. You know what I mean? Like in that moment, of it's course, like, of course you can't, it's, it's like, what am I going to say? How dare you? It's like, the people are bleeding right next to me. Like, you know I mean? like it's, it's like perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, anyways, so then the cops are like, right, if you're not injured, you can go. Because we're just waiting around. Wow. Because um, uh, it's like they're taking the injured people to like wherever. So then I slowly start walking around the block. Now, I know East London like the back of my hand, right? Uh, I walk out Allgate Station and I'm walking, walking, and I'm just so disoriented. Like, you know Nightmare Elm Street where yeah. people try to leave the town? Yeah. I end up back in front of Allgate, Allgate Station. I don't know to this day how that happened because I walked for ages and then back outside the station. Um, and then I just slumped down thinking, I don't know how to get home. Like, it's just this thing of shock is hitting me. And then I remember there was a girl on the train, um, cause I remember her face, she's covered in soot and I sat down next to her. Like, it was just, and she goes, you were there as well. I was like, yeah. I, was like, I don't know what I, I just said. I'm trying to get home. I can't. And then a journalist, um, who was at the time, like we've sort of befriended each other online. Uh, Peter Bale, he used to work for the times of London. He came over and goes, you both on the train? I said, yeah. And then these two amazing angel women, like they come to both of us and like, are you both okay? And I just said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And then I start shivering and then I, over here she goes, he's going into shock. So they give me like one of these red blankets um, and we're sitting down slumped. But just at this point, the police had cordoned off the whole of Allgate Station. So we're sitting just behind, like just in front of the cordons. And because we've got these red blankets and we're like kind of like out of it, the cops see us and they come over and said, right, we're taking you to the hospital. Like, if you can't move, then you should come with us. Yeah. So, um, Peter Bell, like, and these like, amazing, like, angel women, I, I wish I could thank them. I, whenever I've done interviews, I've always said, you know, whoever you are, thank you so much. Where did um, they, where do they come from? Are they from a shop? They're just or? Londoners, like, you know, Londoners on the street, just like, just, they're trying to help, you know, cause people are like freaked out by like, uh, and you see like a lot of photographs, um, 
And a lot of people come forward to talk about it. Weren't actually on the train themselves. They're actually helping people getting off the train. Like, so people just, you know, it was like London, in it? It's like people trying to help. Because um, it's like obviously something's gone wrong, but no one knows what it is at that point. Like people still don't. Um, and so we get on the state. We get back to the um, be- behind the cordons, like where the police have taped off. And the police, are oh, you right, mate? Yeah. He goes, what's your name? He's like, Mustafa. He goes, okay, can I check your bag? I was like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I just like laughing at this point because I think it's funny. Because it's, la- it's a laptop bag, so it's a rucksack type thing. If you'd have said Terry, would they have still checked your bag? Who knows? The thing is, look, everyone's in shock, right? Like, if you think like, a police officer is trained in London to deal with like muggers and burglars, like the, the, the average police officer never really, like, And maybe, because um, like, I've got friends who are cops and they tell me like they're training, maybe people with guns, you don't get trained for something. Maybe now. Back then, yeah, like bombings were like IRA from the 80s. No one's really, you know. So yeah. anyways, there's not enough ambulances. So they've commandeered all the buses and they're taking, putting people on the buses and driving them to the hospital because that's the only way you can get lots of people in one go, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the the traffic's like being, is deadlocked. Like people can't get anywhere. Like how do you get cars who have been trying to get through and there's a massive junction and they can't get past? Everyone's stuck, right? Mm. So they just get on the bus, drive around. around. We get to... um Whitechapel Hospital, uh, and so like friends of mine start seeing me on Sky News because with a red blanket that this woman has given me, and I'm still holding on to it. Um, and and so we get into hospital, and then as soon as we walk through the hospital door, the TV's on, and I that's the moment I just hit where they just said uh, bombings are going off around London. Oh. Like, so the report at this point, you still wasn't sure. No one, and it must have been maybe about possibly two hours after after the actual thing has happened. So around 45 minutes on the underground, um, you know, uh, and it, it happened like quarter to nine in the morning. Yeah. Um, I must have got home past lunchtime, like, because oh, I, I, I got let, let out of the hospital very quickly because they just gave me oxygen just because obviously London underground is really dirty. Like the, the, the tunnels are really, there's a lot of thick soot. And it's just, I remember having the smell of that black soot in my nose for like weeks. I just couldn't get it out. Like, and also that's maybe psychological as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like they, uh, they took lots of blood. Apparently it's like, uh, my friends who are doctors says like, they'll do that because if you've got like a relatively uncommon blood type, they'll just, say oh yeah let me just take lots of blood like, oh, really? yeah might as well <laughs> so it's like yeah whatever um so they took blood and then it's like, okay you can go like you're you're relatively fine there's nothing and physically so, wrong yeah no exactly um and also there's like a queue of people like bleeding all over the hospital like you know it's like it's like a war zone how how did you see people with significant injury oh yeah like people couldn't walk properly bleeding everywhere and maybe this dead body i don't know i, I, I just don't know like i it's one of those things that I remember at the time, I remember talking about at the time, and I had this sort of faint memory of something that's like black, like coal, um, like carbonized body, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, and it's weird, you have this kind of out-of-body experience at the time, like you're kind of there, but you're not. Um, and so like at the hospital, I'm trying to phone family. Now, if you don't, if you remember at the time, the whole of London mobile network got shut down, like, because they were afraid that like they thought he was afraid that there might be more bombers because yes. the reports were there was bombings happening everywhere. Like they, I think I remember on the screen account eight because there's lots of misinformation. Right. Um, and like, there's not remember in 2005, there's no YouTube, there's no Facebook that's public. There's no Twitter. None of these like things where people could validate or find out or like, you know, uh, Wi-Fi connection was not apparent like around London. So the moment they shut network connection down, you can't contact anyone. 
So I'm at, I, and for whatever reason, my reception just, I'm like, not just reception, my phone battery was dying because I must have been taking lots of pictures. Mm. Um, so I phoned my mum, I said, look, something's happened, I'm all right. I'm, I'm at the hospital, but I'm fine. Um, and then my phone cuts out. And I told her that she managed to get to the hospital. So then afterwards, like they're saying, they're crying, going, oh my God, what's happened? So my dad and my sister, they rushed to the hospital. They're running around the hospital looking for me. I've been discharged, but I'm in the canteen part because they've got like, um, I think maybe like priests has come to just talk to people. Like, is everyone okay? Because people are like, you know, the hospital's gone into action. Was like, okay, people might be leaving, but they psychologically, you know, need a, a safe space for a bit. Yeah. And so I'm just wandering around like a zombie, going, "What the hell's going on?" Um. And my 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 dad and my sister are looking for me, and. As they're going into the wards, they're getting like the people who are not that bad injured, so people who are much injured, and that they can't find me. They're thinking, oh, this is much worse. He must not have told us on the phone. And then they find this young girl who I just by pure fluke had taken a photograph of. Um, and they said, you know, she's and she's like crying to them because I'm trying to find she goes, they're trying to find me. My dad's like, my son, I can't find him. Um, and she was trying to find her her family, like she because she couldn't, you know, people can't. Like, it's weird. It's like you just can't function. You can't f- using a phone becomes like a, a task. Like, yeah. it's really hard. Yeah. Um. And so, like, I took the like having those pictures. I thought, okay, when I showed my dad, he goes, "That's the girl we were helping." So she was quite badly injured, but she was okay. Like, you know, as much as you can be. Um. And so then I just my my dad suddenly saw me. My sister, they're like, "Oh my god, he's fine." Uh, this is me trying to drink a cup of tea, which I'd taken from this like weird chapel thing in hospital. Um. And it's okay, let's go. And I said, okay. And so we're slowly walking. And we walk out of the hospital. And I just see this. Um, and this, to this day, I'm thinking, why did I do this? Um, but there's a gang of uh, journalists. And I just walked up to them. I said to my dad, one second. So what I said, are you a journalist? Yeah, so I just got off the train. And they're like, suddenly, all of the viewfinders want me. Click, 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 click. Who are you? And again, timeline. Uh, uh, it was like 7th of July, um, was the bombing happened. The 6th of July, London had just found out they got the 2020-12 Olympics. So all of the press and papers was this jubilation. Of two, on, 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 on the 7th of July, the newspaper was like, oh, my God, we've got the Olympics. Suddenly, something amazing has happened to London. Because you know how everyone in the UK is. It's like always pessimistic. It's like, oh, my God. And then this happens. Uh, so people are saying, so what happens? I'm just like recounting stuff. And then some journalist goes, so do you think Muslims did this? And, I, and my... <laughs> Back then, I was very competitive when I'd, I'd argue, very argue, well, I am still argumentative now, I suppose, to a degree, but back then even more. And so my instant reaction was, well, how do you know it was Muslim? How do you know the French didn't do it because they didn't win the Olympics? Like, that's like kind of like, and they're looking at me like, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. like, and you think, obviously, why would the French go, oh, we didn't win the Olympics. Let's bomb London. Like, you know, it's, it's, what, uh, what, what was your thinking when you went up to them? What, why why did you do that what was it about you wanted you wanted to talk you felt like you needed to find information what like what what motivated you to do it because i mean it's it's a good thing that the press get information and, and circulate it but then angles appear and and obviously the most obvious one was because it was such a hot topic at the, at the time is that this would be uh sort of some sort of islamic extremism yeah um, and did you know, know? Did you know yourself as a as a Muslim man to be approaching the press probably wasn't going to work out for you, or is it just you was it wasn't the, you wasn't thinking straight? What would you have done now? Well, I'm- as a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B two B. 
And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, the thing is, like at the time when I was doing the government advisory thing, I was always... <laughs> Like whenever you get to work on those things, government and the like social sector love you because you're like you know someone with a funny sounding name who can speak English, yeah, and that makes them look good. And you know this, you know the score, like, yeah. And you know. um, and I think at that point I had got into my head that I had to be a voice of my community. I had to speak because I never really had anyone like me growing up, so maybe I could represent, you know, a viewpoint, and also I could say what actually happened, yeah. Like you know. It, conspiracy theories you know they went wild after that event but i could at least say you know i was there whatever and i just i don't know i just had this burning urge to talk to them i don't know why so um so what did what did they when when they when they found that you was muslim and willing to speak was did you find that that was what influenced all of them so in the beginning like that i mean so outside the hospital it was it was cool people just i said look i got oh and that's the other thing i had photographs i said hey look i was there i've got pictures like do you want them you know, um, and they're like, oh, my God. So then I'm giving my email number like, and phone number to all these different journalists. I said, Look, I'll email it to you. Let me get home and I'll email you. And they're, they're looking at the pictures on their phone trying because it's really bright day. And it's like, could you send this to us? I said, yeah, let me get home and I'll just send it to you. Uh, so if I maybe have like, two hours after I got home, most of what I was doing was emailing photographs to journalists all around the world. 
Was you, did I, you, were they paying you or did you just give them? Not away? in the beginning. I mean, I just send them randomly. Um, the news of the world, they just send me a check. Um, and then <laughs> one of my dad's friends who lived on our road happened to work for um, a company that would like commission photographers or like look after them, be like their account manager. He happened to be the lead singer of the Buzzcocks, the original lead singer, wow. Howard Trafford, wow. just by pure fluke. It's just like, my dad hated the punks, but he was really good friends with this guy. And he got, he's like, I think he's like um, the conductor of like a musical orchestra because he always talks about making music at the BBC. And then I found out it's this guy, Howard Trafford, who was the original singer of the Buzzcocks. <laughs> and I thought that was funny, weird, like juxtaposition of, and he's like, are you okay? Like, you know, uh, I can represent you if you want. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, so the News of the World, they sent me a check for using pictures. I didn't, you know, uh, what, other, so it, after the fact that like you it, it was, yeah they just uh, sent me like i think it was like 500 quid they sent me for like um or something like that because uh, they used pretty much a lot of my pictures uh but the thing is like i was just randomly sending them to people it wasn't really a thing where i thought i could make money from this because it's, it's kind of weird juxtaposition where i'm just taking pictures um i'm not thinking ah oh, there's money here like, do you know what i mean and oh, well no it, you gave you gave all the pictures away it wasn't i, I, don't, much, think, I yeah. don't think anyone thinks that uh, I mean, I, I don't. I, that, that's not the conclusion I came to. But um, I, I um, you, you mentioned a little bit about the conspiracy theories there, and like you saw it, you was there. Did you ever read anything online that was clearly untrue, but written as such a, as written as such? Um, so I, rem- I look. I to be clear, I wasn't on the the, ca- the the carriage where the bomb was, but I did meet someone who was. And I just kept saying something like the official story just fell off. Now I don't really think about it so much. Yeah. But it just fell off because the way, like, again, I'm not a scientist, but the train lifted up from under, from underneath the carriage, right? From underneath the track. So I felt like a bomb like pushed upwards. So you're thinking, did someone put something? My assumption was someone put something on the track and ran. It wasn't a suicide bomber. And then um, when I met one of the guys, he's like an old guy. He was kind of distraught, like. And he goes, I don't believe this official. This is all rubbish. I was in the carriage. I almost fell into the hole. It came, something came from underneath the train. And I was just like, because well, just, I mean, I'm going all over the place and then explain the story. Like a lot of the survivors were brought together on many occasions just to sort of like have therapy sessions and whatnot. And there was like charity set up for us to get like um, one-to-one sessions and like they'll do massages and all these. Basically, it's like just try and help us cope for about two years after the therapy. The, the, yeah. Like various different types of therapy. So I get I got to meet a lot of the survivors through those things, um, and befriended some of them. I've lost contact with most of them, well, all of them now. Um, but one, this guy, he was like saying I was on the train. He goes, it something, it something didn't come on the train. It's under the train. Thing I can't validate that. Um, yeah, shock happens, and there was lots of conspiracy theories. Like there was a bomb explosive truck there apparently on the day. Well, no, that this was actually a real thing where um, the governments like. And police and army, whatever, they do training sessions where they'll fake events for themselves to do test how their responses are. Yeah. And so then when uh, uh, when the authorities were called, the first question they asked was, is this real world or is this fake? Like, this is simulated. And so now this is actually happening. And the simulation on that day apparently was a bombing. These things have been validated to be true. Yeah. Um, but then the thing is, and then obviously, like, when the, the official police report of the guys who come down, the train that they said that they used wasn't running that day. So then you stop, you start in your head piecing. But the problem with conspiracy theories, it requires you to believe stuff, which is insane. Um, and I mean, the idea that this is false flag, you know, at that point, if you think about it logically, 
Tony Blair's government was already in Iraq. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what do they need convincing the people? People weren't happy with that anyway. Oh, let's just blow up London. It just doesn't make sense, right? And then people say, oh, well, it's a foreign power. It's whatever. The thing is, you'll never know 100% for sure. Um, and is there any, I mean, you know, what can you do? It's like me as an individual going onto Twitter going, oh, my God, it's a government conspiracy. And then what happens? Nothing. No. Um, but, yeah, so after I get home, I'm sending pictures. TV journalists now are contacting me. And so, like, GMTV, which no longer exists as it was, they said, you want to come and do, like, tomorrow morning? I said, so, like, it was Thursday happened, I believe. So Friday morning, they invite me down to, to the CEO. I say, all right, cool. Like, all right, I'll go. Um, and because of getting annoyed by some of the questions, um, I'm thinking, I can answer. I'll, I'll put them in their place. Like, you know, if they're asking me questions about what's it like to be a Muslim, so whatever. You was annoyed by the questions you've already been fielded and then you yeah. prepared when you was going into GM. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I'm going, to, I'm going <laughs> this is probably the wrong terminology. I'm going to war right now, <laughs> yeah. uh, verbally anyway. So I get to the to GMTV um, and it's kind of surreal. And also there's a thing, like, there's a weird appeal about being asked, to, back then especially, being asked to go on TV. It's like, it's weird, like, oh my God, I'm going to be on TV. Um, but I can yeah, say... How old are you? 24. 24 at the time. And also, but, but the thing is, it's like, this is giving me a platform to say what needs to be said. Like, this is the thing that kept going on in my head and has always been like, from when we used to work at Exposure together, like, things, this has given me the chance to say what needs to be said. Like, this, you know, this is just an opportunity. Um, and so, like, I get to GMTV. I'm like, the presenters, you see them, it's so weird. Like, they've been so, oh my God, I've worn my pinstripe suit. What do you think? It's going to look really good on the camera. I'm thinking, that's really superficial. Like you hear them talking about this backstage in the green room, people just laughing, joking, whatever. And I'm thinking, this is all surreal. And then you cut to, you go, right, we're going live. And suddenly everyone's pretending to be serious. I'm thinking, hey man, you guys are really fake. Like that was the first thing that came to my head. It's like, my God, how fake you are. And so there's two of us on the couch. Um, This guy who was on the bus, uh, I think Mediterranean guy, he could speak, he had an accent and there was me. And they're swapping between us. But, I've got video footage of like, like we recorded it back when the VHS was to the thing. Um, and you can see the way they're talking to him and the way they're talking to me is very different. Like really some, Oh, so how, how's it? Like, oh my God. So most of the like, you know, like re- really cold with me, really warm with him. And again, you can read too much into things, but it just, you can tell. And other people seem to have guys. Yeah. They're really, it's like they've, they've got something under their skin with you. Yeah. Um, a young guy who's Muslim who worked in the third sector, just like the guy who happened to blow up the train that I was on. Like I said, it's weird parallels, right? Um, and so then they said, okay, now, again, I think you have to be fair to the people, like the journalist at the time, when she said she said to me, how does, she got so Mustafa, can I ask if you're a Muslim? And then that in my head, it's like, right, here it comes. Right? And I said, yes, I am. Uh, and she goes, okay, so how does it feel to be a Muslim? And I think what she was actually asking, like in hindsight, is... His, I'm giving, I'm throwing you the ball so you can say, no, we're not a terrorist religion. We're people of peace. Whatever. That's what I think she was trying to do. Although the way she worded it was clumsy. I don't think she was expecting me to sit there and apologize for every atrocity someone who happens to be Muslim has committed. Mm. But that's how it sounded. And in my 24-year-old brain, it just went off like on fireworks. And I just said, how does it, f-? I mean, I remember it's like, how does it feel to be Christian after what? 
uh, Hitler did? How does it feel to be atheist after what Joseph Stalin did? You know, you can't judge people by the, the, the majority by the acts of individuals. And I said, you want to know how I feel? First, I was scared. Now I'm angry. And I think if Muslims did this until I have proof in my hand, but if Muslims did this, then it should, Tony Blair should take responsibility and he should resign. And that's when they cut the interview. Like, whoa, he's going to. <laughs> and like, okay, right, we need to move on. <laughs> and then like everyone was just went in panic mode. What has he just said on live TV? Like Tony Blair should resign. This is the day after a thing has happened. And people are like, oh, my God. And so I'm back in the green room. And then, <laughs> and then like, people, the, the producers are loving it. They think, this is great. This is amazing TV. This is going like, to go all think, over the place. Yeah. And then BBC Radio wants to call me. And they're live on there. And I'm just taking the phone from the green room. So I've just basically taken over the green room now. And they go, so what do you think? And then, I mean, some of the stuff I was saying was a bit silly. I mean, it's just, but then you're in this state of shock and anger. So everything's just coming out. Yeah. So then I said on the radio, um, it's 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 bad and you know it's like if, if these are because i said if these are muslims and they're probably iraqi that was my assumption right and i said if, if they were iraqis were attacking like military bases although it's wrong you can understand what like their logic but attacking civilians makes no sense like why would you just attack innocent people it just doesn't make like if this was iraqis taking revenge uh because like, you'd been like you don't mean you want british soldiers to be attacked like, no 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 of course not but like you can understand the logic like when you see so, uh, sociology teachers, what they do is they try to do a thought experiment with their students, where like, especially like Amer in America, where they'll say, imagine if China invaded the US and tries to take over its coal industry. And imagine like they instill a puppet government and a group of people tried to fight that. What would you call those? And it's like, oh, freedom fighters. I said, OK, let's change the words. We say uh, China for America and America for Iraq and coal for oil. And now you basically have an, and people, oh my God, like, yeah, I can see why. You don't agree with the means and people do, but you understand logically why someone comes to those conclusions. And that's basically what I was trying to say. Again, 24 year old me is not explaining it in an articulate way. And it's like, yeah, you know, and then so people in the green room going, yeah, we need to use the phone now because I'm just going off on one. And then the producer goes, hey, do you want to go back on life on, on GMTV again? I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> so like, Cause I'm, I'm like, yeah, they're all listening, right? I'm in that mode. Yeah. So then I go back on the couch, and then the woman, woman, uh, and it's like it's a woman and a man, and they swap every with every interview. And when the guy saw me come back in the studio, he goes, "Yeah, I don't want to interview this guy." He jumps on the other side of the couch and pushed the woman, like the woman interviewer, forward. So like, you do this. I don't want to talk to him because <laughs> I, I freaked them out, right? Wow. <laughs> And so the woman turns to me, she goes, look, we've had a lot of complaints. People think that you're a terrorist sympathizer. Oh, my God. Um, so I think maybe you might want to apologize for it. But anyways, right, we're live back on air. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like at that point, it's like, you're telling a 24-year-old a, a, a who's going through shock, who's, you should be thinking, yeah, maybe we shouldn't put this guy on camera, like retrospectively, like as the adults in the room. But you just said, right, people are phoning. They think you're sympathizing with terrorism. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite. But... That's what they've got. And then they said, right, we're going live. Like, you don't even give me a chance to rebut all that. And so then the second time I go on there, I said, look, you know, um, obviously we this is no justification. But then it's like, my, my mind's like, why would I, why am I, why do I feel compelled to have to say this? People should know that there is no justification for murder. Like, but it's like, you have to say it to prove that you're not one of the bad guys. So one of the articles I wrote for the Times was picking sides. It's like, Either I have to be on the good side or the bad side. But being on the good side means I have to accept certain things like supporting the war in Iraq or whatever. It's like, well, no, it's, it's not like this juxtaposition. I mean, you think with Brexit, it's the same thing. It's like, now you can support some things of it and you could be against other things. It's not this black and white thing. But when you polarize these things, it becomes really hard to talk about them. Um, but so, yeah, and then after that, I mean, I 
was getting phone calls from everywhere. I was on Panorama. The Panorama interview was really good. Like, they interviewed me for two hours and used one segment of when me saying the same thing that Tony Blair should resign because um, <laughs> that became like my calling card. Mm. Uh, and um, they would, it's, it's the uh, segment in between an interview with, with a suicide bomber or like a, 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 a terrorist who uh, managed, who didn't manage to kill himself but was caught in a, in a prison whatever so they segment what i'm saying about anything okay what are you implying here because like when i interviewed with the panorama i was running circles around them. whatever they said i just answered and they and the guy said yeah I, we don't know we can't really argue with you because you're making sense but none of that was used the bit was used was just like you know and then so i interviewed a cnn like it was weird the sun newspaper cnn they were amazing like they were like yeah this guy's going through some stuff we, we're not going to air some of the maybe controversial things You've he's got saying sympathy from the sun absolutely man like wow. they were <laughs> the sun newspaper was amazing uh, and the news of the world the times they like again like and but at the same time G- gmtv and bbc were terrible like this is the thing is like i had a viewpoint of the world before and after that it made me think well no man these are gray like, so many areas of gray yeah there uh, is no there's no black and white man there's no with, with media responsibility you find one producer who sees an opportunity in you and another journalist who thinks this is exploitative um, and there is no black and white. Um, I mean, there is there's more black on the sun than there is <laughs> white in terms of uh, you know you can you can see where the line is with them typically. So that's why we're so surprised when you said actually they were quite conscientious. But um, yeah, yeah. It's, what's what's your opinion then of the of the press now? Then I mean, because like you say, we you mentioned exposure. Exposure is a, a youth media organisation that me and Mus worked for or, or benefited from back in the day. Yep. And we were trained to to ask questions and to attack and to to, um, to 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 not shy away from difficult conversations. And that that training that we'd had over many, many years would have probably led me into a similar situation where I thought, yeah, I can help. I, I have a, I have an opportunity to control this narrative naively because you can't you can't combat these these media institutions. They they have their own agendas and they'll twist what what they want. Yeah, no, I mean, but uh, if I was not media trained, this was the best training forever. Like, you know, right. like later on when dealing with journalists, I find it very easy now. But back then it was like a, you know, baptism by fire. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I mean, the CNN were really, really cool. Uh, and I, I've still got the voicemail recording somewhere. Where I'd be on the phone with one journalist. I shut, hang up the phone and I've got like 15 voicemails and you play. It's like, hi, we're calling from Sky. Hi, Time magazine. Hi. I was interviewed on People magazine, which is like the um, gossip mag in the US, which is really big. It's just funny. Like I, I was on German TV um, and it became, a, I mean, I'll be honest, it became very addictive. Like I, whenever they'd ask, I just go on there. Yes, and, it's like ego, isn't it? It's an ego thing. 100%. Like, I can see why you have these like reality stars who, or any celebrity, who, when they stop getting the shine on them, that they do something a bit crazy to get it back on them. Yeah. And then every time they have to do something crazier to get the attention again. And I can see why. Because when the, the phones stop calling, that's when the recovery starts happening. And you just feel this emptiness, like, don't they care about me anymore? It's like, well, again, retrospectively, what, they never cared. It was like, it's yeah, their job, right? Yeah. Um, but then it's like a 24-year-old kid going through uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, having seen people die, questioning why they survived. On top of that, having the recovery process delayed because I keep jumping in front of the camera. Mm. Um, and so like, my parents and family started seeing 
that me going responding to Jonas was bad. And then um, a friend of ours uh, who knew someone who was in Mossad, the um, Israeli intelligence service, or former Mossad agent, he recommended that I just go quiet for a little bit because he said, like, if you keep saying anti... I mean, again, this is like the cons- borderline conspiracy. Theory. If you keep saying anti-government stuff, they'll start digging up things and you'll start seeing them in the press. Uh, around about the same time, there was a guy who... He lost his leg um, and he was trying to get, like, a, a public inquiry going. Um, and he got signatures, signatures, whatever. And he was getting quite popular. And then suddenly, um, uh, I think he was involved in some... Uh, sexual assault case when he was 18 mm-hmm. that was all over the press and that killed that what thing that he was trying to do and when you see stuff like they think all right it's time to go quiet now mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. like you know but then it's like i don't know is this is like the borderline conspiracy is this true but this guy like these people told me like stop talking too much they were legitimate i knew that for a fact so then my dad goes right let's go turkey holiday right yeah. for a month yeah and to take take him out and that's when i think where my the recovery psychologically started happening i, I started crying breaking down like like thinking what what actually happened and i think one thing is like whenever you're going through something psychologically intense removing yourself from the scenario situation place if it's at work or if it's it's the best thing because it allows you to reflect without the constant reminders and burdens Mm. so going out there actually helped a lot and when i was speaking to therapists they said to me the first sign of recovery is to cry and when you start doing that that's when you actually um it's when your brain's coming to terms of what's actually happened Mm-hmm. the other thing is the downside of the downside of not being physically injured is when i met one of the guys there's a guy called moses actually he, he was also a victim <clears throat> and he told me that his eye was slightly damaged um and the therapist said to him the advantage of being physically damaged is as your body heals your mind starts to heal because there's like a physical anchor to say okay you're healing when you don't have that it's hard to see where you're healing or not like psychologically mm-hmm. um so i'd be like in a therapy office and um like i mentioned before like uh rock climbing i saw like these rock climbing magazines and the therapist goes you need to find something that can f- physically manifest and i always was cynical of these like stuff it's like yeah this is all rubbish so <laughs> i found there was like a rock climbing class in finsbury park in uh in, in north london mm-hmm. and so I, I started going there and i couldn't climb for for whatever and it was weird like i was trying to climb up like above six feet and i just couldn't do it and uh the guy said, all right, look, you've got a rope on you. Don't be afraid. And he goes, okay, climb onto the wall, jump off the wall. I said, no, I'm going to fall. He goes, I'm holding onto you. So I jump off the wall. He goes, do it again, jump off the wall. And then suddenly I, I could climb. And <clears throat> when I, so I finally got to the top, I started like, you know, getting emotional. He goes, are you all right? You've just climbed the wall. Hmm. And then I explained to him, I said, no, the reason why I'm here is because it's kind of, I'm trying to have some physical manifestation of like, I'm getting over this. And that's when he, everyone in the climbing class suddenly start confiding, like, because, oh, yeah, my wife died from cancer. And oh, wow. <laughs> it became like this weird, like, uh, um, people are here for many reasons. Some are just here to keep fit, but some are actually here trying to um, get over something. And that was just pure, like, you know. Uh, so that helped. Um, and then for about a year, I was constantly harassed by, like, journalists. And after a while, I just stopped responding. I thought, you know what? And then you remember David Floyd, like he used to, course, yeah, used to be was... editor of like of, of Exposure magazine. And I was like into writing. And then David just said advice. I mean, he was a very he's like sage, wise person, even for like a young kid, but very wise. Yeah, he was he always said, a, he was an old man in a young body. Yeah. Um, and he just said to me, like, do you really want to become a celebrity victim? Like, is that what you want? Like, you know, it's OK to get the opportunity to write for The Times or whatever. But 
And then I started thinking, well, that's right, you know, because like, if you want to be a celebrity, be it for something that you've achieved, not just for something like this. So then when you're hearing these things, okay, that started to alleviate the addiction of the press. And then almost a year later, <laughs> my next door neighbor son, he was like 17 at the time, was arrested um, under the Terrorism Act. Uh, and I, I don't know if you remember, there was like this uh, thing of where people were trying to blow up planes with fluid. And that's when they banned Rob, taking um, water onto planes. Robin, no, uh, Stephen Reed, is that right? Um, I, th I think it was after him. Okay. But like, the, 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 there was like a, a thing where they were apparently supposed to blow up planes, and that's when like taking water in was banned. Yeah. Fluid. So I happened to be on holiday in Turkey again, and phone calls happening, uh, and then I, I start panicking because I thought. If a journalist realizes that we're neighbors, that's like, you know, the fox and the hound. On one side, we have a victim. On the other side, we have like a convicted whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think a Daily Mail journalist called me up and I just hung up straight away. I knew he found out like, and then he messaged me, goes, look, I'm really sorry. I won't say anything if you don't want me to say anything. Um, but if you want to talk, I'm here for you to talk. And that's like, oh, my God, a Daily Mail journalist with like proper integrity. Thinking, Did you believe him? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, and he 100%. never did. No, he never did. Wow. Uh, this is the first time I actually mentioned it. <laughs> um, yeah. But it doesn't matter now. I mean, just, you know, it's it's do you, know, do you know? It's what's what do, I often ask this question on on this podcast because we talk to all kinds of people, and some some of it is emotional, like this one. Um, do you do you think that people are good? Do you fundamentally are human beings good? I think human beings are fluid. You know, they're like, you know, like the Bruce Lee saying, be, be like water. I think people are fluid. Like you can wake up this morning and do an amazing act of good and that night do an amazing act of evil. I think sometimes you do stuff, you don't even realize why you're doing it. Um, and I think most people, like if you were to ask them, think they're doing something good. And if you were to pry into their rationale, if you're willing to empathize with their position, even if you disagree with it, you'd probably think, Okay, they are trying to do something. So even if, like, I don't know, the stuff, the stuff that's going on in America right now, people who, what you, we would say are on the wrong side, are probably thinking, no, I'm defending my country. Right? And if you were to tease out, like, what, why are you doing this? They probably feel like this compelling thing to defend their country. Now, we would disagree with that. We say it's wrong. They're supporting racists or whatever. Um, but I think in their mind they're doing the right thing. Um, and I think in that notion, I think most people are, are, are able to do good. Um, I don't think people are inherently evil. I just think, you know, people come with a whole baggage of things, you know, it's never like, there's never one simple reason. Like maybe someone does something for ulterior motives. Maybe they're doing it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, it's like you think about the act of giving to charity. Do you think it's purely a good thing? Like, I don't like, um, philanthropy i think the nation the notion of it is, is terrible it's like if you're going to give to charity give it and don't talk about it like that's what people should do but then you see these very rich wealthy people give 20 grand to like a charity it helps the charity you know credit where credit's due but they're doing it to get like their name publicized in the paper like if they try to get the same column inch um press they would cost them like 120 grand like to get yeah a, you know a journalist to write something so what are they actually doing is it an act of good or evil and i think um, most acts are usually like people have a mixture of both. There's good and bad. Um, but I think people, you know, like outside the train station, those two ladies, I never met them before. 
they saw someone who needed help and they stopped and helped. Now, for all they know, bombings could still be happening, but they've stopped. They say, no, man, I, I need to help this kid and this other lady. Like, that's like an act of like something angelic. Mm. And you, you juxtaposition that with guys who claim to be spiritual, killing people indiscriminately. So it's like, it's, you know, I think what it does is it opens, like these sort of events opens up your eyes to say that your side is not necessarily the good side. There are people who are good and bad on all sides. Um, but I think, yeah, people can be good. I, I think the important thing is for us to just um, reflect on what we do um, and try to improve on ourselves in that respect, you know? I mean, I make mistakes all the time. I say stupid things all the time. Even to this day, even like before I got on this this podcast, like I was having a go at my daughter for closing a door repeatedly. I mean, is that sane? No. <laughs> but, like, but like, you know, we're all idiots. Kids are annoying though, aren't they? That's oh, yeah, especially, uh, they just, they, especially when they keep doing the same thing on repeat. It's just <laughs> like a pod. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mus, thank you so much for, for spending uh, your time and, and chatting about this stuff. I know it's many years has passed and you've you've gone through, you admitted to yourself that you've gone through a process of recovery, but you never really let this stuff go and it must be difficult sometimes to bring, bring it back up. But I really want to thank you for, for doing that. Uh, yes, right. I mean, just and like uh, Griff Rhys Jones talked about like the death of his father, uh, and he said, "You don't get over it; you get used to it." And I think that's pretty much um, with most of these trauma things. Not to sound bleak, but you you get on with it, right? And you get used. To it. It's like I think after this COVID nineteen stuff, people are suffering from like post traumatic stress disorder right now. Psychology, you can see it. I mean, someone who's been through these things a few times, um, and I think people just need to be kind to themselves and say look just get through it it's fine mm. um but you just get used to it you know mm-hmm.